this is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organisation. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th-century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero emissions energy, zero emissions buildings and zero emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radioteam at beyondzeroemissions.org. Tonight we go back to Lake Macquarie. This is part two of the Beyond Coal and Gas Conference at Myuna Bay. We meet John Hepburn, whose Sunrise Project created a space for communities from all around the country. What gets these diverse groups of people together? Well, Drew Hutton says it's the fact that we're in a period of revolutionary change. We will hear from Gadrian Hooson, who came with the Borolula mob all the way down from the Gulf Country country via Catherine and Darwin to tell us about fending off the frackers. And Wendy Farmer from Voices of the Valley down in near Morwell. You'll hear how they've become politicised through their tragedy and they're now a force to be reckoned with. There'll be no more outside solutions for the valley without consultation, I'm pretty sure of that. We have Dan Spencer, AYCC, fighting for a big new solar plant at Port Augusta and very close to winning, and Lee Eubank at Friends of the Earth, whose strategies have been finely honed over the years, and he shares with us how they took away the social license for coal at Anglesey via Twitter and Facebook, and how they're trying to remove the roadblocks to renewables in the Victorian State Parliament. Last of all, you'll hear Drew Hutton talking about mine rehabilitation and the jobs of the future and the new social order that he thinks will come from this. It won't be just re- replacing corporations who deal in fossil fuels with new similar corporations who deal in renewable energy. There'll be a lot more community input and participatory democracy as he sees it. So stay tuned. We're listening to the Beyond Zero Emission Show on Radio 3CR. John, I loved the conference that you organised with your team there. It was a really, you said it was a gathering like a family reunion, and I feel that too, because a lot of the people I've met at your previous conferences and gatherings have been my guests later on this radio show, and I've sort of followed like the story of Gloucester. You know, we followed that story, and now they've had a win. So I love meeting those people again, and especially people from remote areas and country areas, and they meet us, the sort of city, city activists who aren't really... Obliged to be there, but we've just got onto this thing, and, and they, some of them, have got no choice. So, uh, could you tell us a little bit about the thinking behind this? You know, it's really been a, an unprecedented expansion of the fossil fuel industry in Australia, and with you know hundreds of new mines proposed and, and 
gas fields um, across most states in the country. And there's really been, I, I think of it as a, like a community autoimmune response to that, where local communities have just stood up and, say, and said, no, we've had farmers trying to protect the best farmland in the country. We've had people trying to protect um, Sydney's drinking water catchment. We've had Aboriginal communities protecting their country, all kinds of people, you know, protecting the Great Barrier Reef from nine proposed new coal ports that were, you know, were planned for the Great Barrier Reef area. Um, and so the, the fossil fuel industry really has mobilised this incredible community backlash from one end of the country to the other. And so... I guess how we think about the Beyond Coal and Gas gathering is we just have tried to create a space for this community movement to come together. And so it was fantastic to hear those different voices. But, you know, there's, there's been a long history of green black um, alliances and, you know, some real tensions there as well. I mean, going back to the Jabaluka campaign and other campaigns through the, the history of the environmental movement, the relationship between Indigenous um, communities and environmentalists hasn't always been easy, and it, it, it isn't today, but I, f- I feel like we are making the road by walking yeah. and learning how to work well together. And I think, um, you know, the, the really strong Indigenous presence at the conference, was it was just a great reflection of that journey that we're on. Yeah, that's right. One of the leaders there, the Aboriginal leaders, on the first day he was saying he wanted to be leading, he wanted to be in front, and by the third day he was saying, I, I'm glad that we're walking together which seemed to be quite a profound shift for him and and I really felt it. Listen, I wanted to ask you about the movement in general. Naomi Klein calls this blockadia, you know, and it is a worldwide movement. You had a few international speakers. We interviewed Ramesh Agrawal and uh, quite a few of um, Ursula Rakova from the Carteret Islands and there were quite a few overseas people there. So it is a worldwide movements trying to stop this rapacious industry which it's not going to be a Kodak moment it's not just going to be a change of technology it's really a whole business model that has to lie down or stay in the ground but what do you think about the movement now do you do you notice any different flavor about it or any challenges to it it's much bigger than it was a few years ago yeah that that's right I think you know, four or five years ago, what we had was a fragmented communities that were all just fighting isolated struggles against global mining companies, and they were just losing quietly or losing silently alone, um, which was, I think, really incredibly disempowering for a lot of people. Um, and I think what we have now is a much more connected community of people who are in this fight together and are working together to create a new world, basically, um, which is about protecting local environments and communities and country, but it's also about driving this bigger transition. Um, but what what we're seeing in the, you know, the, the, the energy system and the, I guess, the broader political economy of energy is that there's this incredible transition that's happening where, um, you know, just a few years ago, everyone was projecting that Chinese demand for coal would just keep on going up. Chinese demand for steel would keep on going up. Basically, everything was keeping on going up. Gas prices would keep on going up. Demand Mm. would keep on going up. And that hasn't happened. And we are, the fact that renewable energy has become so much cheaper so quickly and is being deployed at a scale that many of us thought impossible just a few years ago, it's it's changing the fundamentals of the energy sector. And so 
what we're, I think the challenge we face as a social movement now is it's less about, in Australia anyway, it's less about stopping new projects and it's more about driving the transition and closure of existing fossil fuel projects. So how do we... How do we replace a fleet of ageing, polluting coal power stations in this country with renewable energy as quickly as humanly possible? How do we secure the early phase-out and good rehabilitation of mines across the country to keep those fossil fuels in the ground? And the same for you know, coal seam gas. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, how do we, there's still a lot of work to be doing to be preventing particularly shale gas that's being proposed to be rolled out across Western Australia and the Northern Territory, parts of South Australia, and, you know, still pushing in Queensland and elsewhere there. Um, I think that the big fight is moving from coal to gas, and it's moving from stopping new projects to transition and closure. Mm. All right. Well, you, you are in Newcastle, aren't you? You're right there in the thick of the biggest coal port in the world. And I think you said in your initial talk at the conference that it used to be a whaling port, and they used to get a lot of whale oil out of there. Australia's first export was a shipment of coal to India um, in the 1800s and a lot of the, I'm not sure about the the whaling history around Newcastle but some of the early coal was shipped, was used for a transported from Newcastle to feed steamships that were basically whaling to get whale oil, to burn the whale oil to generate light in lamps. Mm. And it's just, you know, when you think about it's the inefficiency and absurdity of that equation of digging up coal to fuel ships to kill whales, to burn oil, to get electricity when today, or, you know, to get light when today we can just go straight to the source. Mm. Um, it's pretty remarkable. And I think the transition that's happened is that energy is no longer derived from a fuel. It's derived from a technology. And fuels over time get more expensive because of resource scarcity and technology over time gets cheaper. That's a profound shift. And that is leading this disruption. And I think we need to be looking more to the internet um, as, as a guide for what will happen with solar than you know, energy technologies in the past because energy is it's now defined by technology and that's you know I just think this shift will change the world incredibly quickly. How do you mean the internet? As a model do you mean or as a, a symbol? As, as, a, as a if you look at the, the deployment of the internet and you look at the deployment of smartphones and so on which are you know technologies that provide a useful service to people they've they've grown and they've the uptake of those technologies has spread just incredibly fast and I think we will see that with solar as it continues to come down the, the cost curve yeah all right well I hope that's right and I um, really thank you very much for all being part of the organization of the sunshine uh, foundations uh, gatherings and uh, what else what, what other work do you do in the mean in between gatherings what how do you uh, help these I don't, the other thing I want to ask you is about the wins just just to finish on the, the things that have been uh, that we can chalk up and say well we're, we're, we're winning here Gloucester's won but what else the, yeah the amazing community of Gloucester who sent AGL packing was a <laughs> tremendous win um, you know in, in Queensland there were a few years ago there were nine proposed new coal ports up and down the Great Barrier Reef coast only one of those is still in on the books and that's pretty close to being knocked off it's not quite dead yet but it's just been a remarkable campaign um, that is you know we've as a result of that there's been changes to 
um, marine protection and you know bans on um, dredging and dumping of dredge spoil in the World Heritage Area. There's some of the biggest um, reforms to you know, marine protection over the last um, you know 20 years, really that have been driven by this campaign against coal port expansion. We've seen mines stopped in the Hunter Valley in Western Australia. Um, in Victoria, there's been some really great progress on uh, mine rehabilitation bonds. This is a result of the Hazelwood Mine Inquiry. Um, and there's a lot further to go with that. And so there's, you know, there's small wins that are cocking up from communities all over the world. And I think we need to basically make it happen faster because we're running out of time on climate. And that's the thing that I think... You know, we're getting these signals from the natural world that a lot of things people thought might be happening in 100 years' time are starting to happen now. So yeah. I think the movement's been building incredible momentum, but we just need to do more faster and really make sure we're keeping fossil fuels in the ground and driving the transition to clean energy as fast as we possibly can. And that's John Hepburn from the Sunrise Project with Vivian at the Mayuna Bay Beyond Coal and Gas Conference in early April this year. This is, of course, if you were listening last week, Mayuna Bay Part 2, where Vivian is bringing us a collection of interviews and speeches from that conference, which was a collection of communities north of Sydney and south of Newcastle. Next up, we have uh, Gadrian Hooson speaking with Vivian. Gadrian is a representative of um, one of the mobs from the Gulf Country, and we have a song first, then the sound. Uh, you may want to turn the sound up for a few minutes to, to catch it, and then the sound brightens up again. So here's uh, a song followed by Gadrian Hooson. Because we got our own system of law. Our law was here a long time 
from green time. And we should carry that on. And we didn't come down here ourselves. We came down here to have a single stand. And this is too far for them to travel. So they sent us and the handful to share this story with all of you and tell you about all the struggles that we've been through and fight against money in the country. Yeah, and you know, that's, that's, that's what I said. It's for future generations. That's what he thought about. Both non-indigenous and indigenous people of this country. We stand together, we unite together, we stand together as one. Um, I've just caught up with some of the people from Borolula who came all the way here to Mayuna Bay to tell us about what is happening in their land, which looks like the most beautiful land that's being polluted already by the MacArthur River mine. Uh, Gadrian, would you like to just explain to us what is, has been happening lately? Um, well, first of all, before I explain this to you, like the, at the mine site, it's not our, our part of the country. No. It's belong to a different language group, the Kurangi yeah. but we're all one big family. Yeah. Like for me, I'm from the Garwa language group. Yeah. Garwa tribe, yeah. And Yanyua too, my grandmother's Yanyua. But the Makat River runs down to where we are. And what's happening, all that mine site is all up in the top side of the area on Kurangi country. And what's happening is that, that they, put, they, they didn't, you know, keep that... Um, poison into that mining lease mm. you know they had no right to contaminate that river system yeah. you know where we live because we live downstream and that's affecting us downstream mm. and that river was our livelihood you know we, we used to fish from top to the bottom of yeah. the river even our kids used to swim in that river you know but like what I said it, it was our livelihood have and they been taken to court by anybody? Well, they did before, and they won the, they won that court. They, they did win it. Yeah, they won that court already up and down. But that was some um, couple of years ago. My, my mother cousin yeah, took them to court up and down before, and they won it. And what happened, uh, he passed away, and they opened that mine up again when he passed away. I see. Yeah. So that's a, a mine that's continuing to pollute your river and your livelihood. What about the fracking? You said your, uh, I saw the photos that you're now worried that there's going to be fracking uh, for gas up there. Yeah, well, they're targeting the whole Gulf country now. Mm. They've got license exploration permit already around the native tidal area, and we sit in this now in the land trust. Yeah. The land trust is under through, like, it's under through NLC, mm. and we got power over the now in the land trust. Mm. You know, we, we, they, can, they can come back another five years' time and keep humbugging us, and we say no, <laughs> they'll come back in the next another five years. But in the native tidal area, you know, that's not our part of the area because they're all pastoralists on it. Uh-huh. Yeah, and, and you know they don't have much power, but you know they're still on our side. They don't want that to happen in their area. So, we, so the pastoralists are on your side, yeah. and your land, I think we saw on the map, looked all very green and untouched yeah. at the moment. Yeah. So, how are you kind of campaigning? And people hearing this program are in Melbourne. You know, they might like to you to tell them where it is, Gulf Country, where and like what is the campaign what do you want people to do well what i want what i want people to do like i want i want i want more of my family with us you know standing with us but which they are they are mm. standing here with us 
But you know, I, I want to see this whole thing stop. Yeah, yeah I want to see the mines shut down. I want to see the. I, I want to stop fracking from coming in there. You know, stop yeah. the drillers coming in and drilling, drilling our country. That's that's what I want to see. And what I want to see, like right now, how the way we're coming together and uniting together. Yeah. And, and standing up for our rights, for our land and water. The water is the most important thing in the world. Yeah. Water is life to us. Yeah. yeah. There's no, no any other country we can get water from if we're going to do, you know, poison our water and damage the land. You know, what, what can we do? What, what can little kids do in the future? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of people at this conference are very... You know, sympathetic and will support you, but it's getting the message to a bigger audience. You know, for the audience in Melbourne, where the Borolulu men have come from, the elders sent the younger men to come down here from Borolulu across to Catherine, then up to Darwin, and then they flew all the way down to Sydney. So it's a big trip from a remote place, which, you know, a company, which do you know which company it is who's going to frack there? Yeah, well, um, energy, that's the one I know, that's the one always come around and humbugging us. Yeah, Yeah, so they're humbugging you. Mm. So they're the ones who are wanting to pipe that gas right across Queensland, I think. So it it does affect all the Australians to know about this, but it's hard to find out about it. So is there anything else you'd like to tell our audience about, you know, why it's important? Well, the main important thing that it's a... Like what I said earlier, our future generation. Mm. They're the main important thing. They're the whole reason why we come down here and standing up and fighting for. And the main important thing again is our dreaming site, sacred site. Yeah. You know, that's what we're going to have to respect and, and, and look after. Mm. You know, that, that was here from, from the dream time. Mm. You know? Yeah. Thank you very much for talking to us. So that was Gadrian from Borolula. Oh, he's got one more thing. One more thing I want to say. Coming together like this, I see real power, people mm. power. Mm. You know, united together, standing up. I reckon we can get somewhere. That's right. Yeah. I had the same feeling at this conference and I was really pleased to see the Aboriginal people here in such force from different mobs around the country in different campaigns because previously we've had, oh, this mine or this coal seam gas and there's a sacred site there and there'd be one person speaking about it or one little workshop. But you've been here in force, you know, a lot of people and telling us a lot about why it's important. So I think there may be, you feel people power that way. Yeah, well, you know, we need, we, it'd be really good to get more support for our, for our campaign, you know, yeah. and keep it going. That's what would be really good. Is there a website that people can go to to find out? Is it Borolula, or what do they look for? Well, I got my own email address to give anyone out so that they can email stuff to you want me. To? Yep. Can you tell the audience? Yes, if, if there's anyone want to email me, you, you can email me on gadrian.husen at gmail.com. Okay, Gadrian, G A D R I O N. No, G A D R I A N. Yes. Dot H O S A N Husen at gmail.com. Fantastic. All right, you heard it there, listeners. So thank you very much.
if you're not absolutely furious, you're really not paying enough attention. The world's a shambles. So come along and join us in being active, and together we can make this world a more ethical place to live. Myuna Bay Conference, Beyond Coal and Gas. And we have with us Dan Spencer from the Port Augusta Repowering Movement. Dan, I've spoken to you before, I think, but can you give us an update? We're feeling, getting the feeling that it's pretty close to uh, actually having that big uh, solar plant there. Can you tell us what's been happening lately? Yeah, thanks for having us on, Vivian. Um, so in f- less than four weeks now, the Port Augusta Coal Station will be closing for good. And so that was done in an unplanned way which you know wasn't ideal for the community but the community for the last five years as many of your listeners probably know um, has been fighting for a solar thermal plant to be built um, in Port Augusta and the really exciting thing is um, just north of town um, there's now a solar reserve who built these massive solar thermal plants in the United States um, have said they want to build there and they've put in an expression of interest to supply um, power to the South mm-hmm. Australian government from Port Augusta um, which is really fantastic and we're hoping to hear a decision from the SA government in the coming coming weeks so we're hoping they'll make the right one um, and the other thing is uh, that was announced recently Malcolm Turnbull when he announced his new clean energy innovation fund he specifically mentioned solar in Port Augusta as a potential project and it was the only pro- project he mentioned so there's a lot of positive noise starting to come yeah. um, there's been yeah a lot of momentum building in the last few months and it's at a, such a critical time um, for the community but now we really want to turn that into you know a commitment and fund before the election, yes. um, especially from Malcolm Turnbull, okay. um, to, to do this. Okay, so the pressure's on on Malcolm Turnbull. I took heart from him mentioning that too, mm-hmm. clean energy, finance and so on. There always was this blockage of finance. I spoke to a linter, I spoke to the local member, Dan Van Horsten-Pelican. Mm-hmm. There was always this problem of financing. Is that becoming clearer? Yeah, look, it is. I think um, this project can get over the line with federal government support. It's, and now that we've actually got a company that wants to build it, and the other challenge was somewhere to sell the power, someone to buy the power. And with the South Australian government looking to source their power from clean energy, yeah. um, that's created this opportunity. Um, and so that's that's why we've seen so much more momentum in the last uh, four or five months um, to really making this a reality. Okay. Well, you've been in this quite a while since AYCC marched, I think, to Adelaide and got the community. It's kind of a classic case of getting the community on side. Would you like to just tell the listeners what that big solar plant will look like when it gets up? Let's say it will get up. And why you got involved in that? Why was that project such an inspiration to you? Yeah, I, I'd heard. Um, from my friend who'd been door knocking in Port Augusta about um, you know what it was like for locals to live next to this power station and heard about some of the health impacts people were going through as well as you know a lot of concern in the community about what um, what were the jobs of the future knowing that eventually the power station wasn't that was going to close there's only one coal mine in South Australia and that's now closing um, it's not like the Lodgeroe Valley or the Hunter where there seems to be um, endless coal um, so you know there was this report saying solar thermal could happen and um, there'd been some community meetings about it and there was interest in starting a local group 
group and I thought, you know, living in Adelaide, there was really a great opportunity to offer my skills and support the community and went up there and lived there for a little while to, to work with um, work with the locals and, and get the campaign going on the ground a bit more. Um, and so that, that's what inspired me um, to get involved in terms of what it will look like. Um, so it's a big, tall tower um, surrounded by a field of mirrors and, you know, it's it's kind of like you're replacing the smoke of a coal station with um, with the sun. So it's a thermal generating power station. It's a base load on demand solar plant. Um, so these mirrors heat up molten salt, which then gets stored and then dispatched when it's needed. So, um, you know, it's a really game-changing technology, um, just like solar PV batteries are. Um, and, you know, we could get the first large one in Australia built just north of Port Augusta, which would be incredibly exciting. And, you know, I think the community deserves it. Well, those two power plants that are closing down, they supplied most of Adelaide or South Australia's energy, didn't they? Is this going to replace that, or how much energy will it replace? Uh, yeah, so it's not the same size as the power station, but one of the reasons the power station is actually closing is because it couldn't keep up with all the other renewable energy that South Australia now has. Um, so, you know, it used to supply 15 to 20%, and historically probably a bit more, of South Australia's energy. Um, but in the recent years, you know, we've had it turned off for six months at a time because it couldn't compete and, and all that. So the, the solar plants proposed um, is a replica of the solar reserve 110 megawatt um, power station just north of Las Vegas. Um, and so it's it's going to be approximately the same size as that, um, which, you know, is a really large-scale power generator um, from the sun. Okay, well, I hope we get back to you on the happy day when it's all announced. Thank you very much, Dan. No worries. Thanks for having me. Um, thanks, Viv. Um, so my name's Lee Eubank, and I coordinate the Yes Renewables campaign for Friends of the Earth Melbourne. I um, took the reins in 2012 and the first phase of the campaign, if you will, was to remove the barriers to renewable energy in Victoria. Um, We started by addressing the anti-wind farm lobby to undermine their power in the mind of the politicians. So once we showed that they were actually a small squeaky wheel with, um, you know, no, no kind of credible community buy-in. Um, that allowed us to win a commitment from the Daniel Andrews opposition um, for the repeal of the anti-wind farm laws. So in 2013, um, Tony Abbott, the newly elected Prime Minister, I think it was November, he made his first comments on renewable energy. And they were very concerning. So um, in a coffee shop in Collingwood, we conceived of a campaign to, to get a Victorian renewable energy target on the election agenda. Um, we wanted to make Victoria a safe haven for renewables um, amid you know, what we could see was a pretty imminent um, cut to the national target. There was an election, and we were able to use Tony Abbott's unpopularity and you know the consistent campaign um, to protect the red. Every time the, re- the national renewable energy target was mentioned, that gave us a platform to talk about the VRET. And um, you know we knew that the opposition they had agreed to repeal the anti-wind farm laws, so they said yes to us once. And you know in sales, you want to get a first yes, and then if they say yes to you once, you can always get a second. Um, so. Um, Part of our election campaign in 2014, we targeted two marginal electorates. Both of those seats had a really good story to tell. 
Um, both of them had community-owned wind farm projects killed off by the coalition's um, anti-wind laws. And, you know, we kind of had that one-two approach of rip up the anti-wind laws, um, remove the barriers, but we need a policy to grow renewables as well. So we were throwing rocks at the coalition for three years straight, and it was quite aggressive. I was even named and shamed on the Hansard in Parliament for being part of Friends of the Earth, this group that supports Robert Mugabe-style policies. So, so despite, all, despite all the crack that they hurled at, at me and Friends of the Earth, I reckon we were the first people to talk to them um, when they were in opposition. And, you know, we just kind of buried the hatchet and we said, look, we want, we want to act in a, We want to be constructive and we want to decontest the renewable energy space so that whatever party, you know, you're aligned to... Um, you should support growing renewables. The differentiation should be how you will grow renewables. Will it be through cutting red tape and free market policies, or will it be through more state government intervention? Lee Newbank told us about how the Surf Coast Action Group down at Anglesey used Twitter to pressure the coal-fired power station to close down forever. So one of the interesting things that they did was use um, social media, you know, one of the best examples I've seen in any campaign, to kind of create the perception of the withdrawal of social licence. And, you know, with the help of some volunteer graphic designers and the campaigners down in Anglesey, we put together this list of all of energy companies that were the potential purchasers of this power, this power plant. So Alcoa put the power plant on the market. You know, there was an opportunity to make it a stranded asset, and this is how it was done. Letters from the community went to every potential purchaser, consistent tweeting and Facebooking and absolutely everywhere that we could, we could get them. Um, we'd, we'd ask them, you know, will you rule out buying the plant? And we managed, like, well, the community, they managed to get AGL, Origin Energy, Red Energy, Momentum. They got some of the big players, and it just created this perception, you know, if the big guys don't want to buy this, this old clunker, does anyone want it? Yeah, so with the closure of the, um, the smelter, which was linked to, you know, the, the social license for the coal plant to operate, you know, that combined with the community campaign creating the perception of the withdrawal of social license, it ended up closing. It was awesome. They couldn't find a buyer, stranded asset, done. So I think the Anglesey coal mine closure, it sets a precedent. Um, if there's a coal plant or mine for sale and there is that perception that social license has been withdrawn or at least contested, they can become stranded assets. And that's Lee Eubank from Friends of the Earth uh, talking about the group Yes to Renewables, preceded by Dan Spencer from the AYCC on repowering Port Augusta. You are on 3CR. This is the Beyond Zero Emissions uh, Community Show. My name's Jane. We've got Andy on the panel tonight. And I just want to take this opportunity to remind you all to donate, donate, donate to us, Beyond Zero Emissions, our show. Uh, The Radiothon's coming up in in June. And as you must know, if you're a 3CR listener, we're completely dependent on your generosity in keeping us on air. And the BZE show, if you do donate, however smaller an amount just um, 
just um, say that you're donating it to the Beyond Zero Emission Show and it'll help give us a running start at this Radiothon coming up in June. You're tuned to 3CR 855 on your AM dial. If you just tuned in to 3CR, why would you stay listening and listening a while? Wendy Farmer. Now, Wendy, you're the president of Voices of the Valley, a community group formed during the catastrophic 2014 Hazelwood Brown Coal Mine Fire in Victoria. And that group has been working for justice ever since. And beyond that, they're faced with a huge task, building a clean and healthy future for the Latrobe Valley. So to tell us about that, please welcome Wendy. You know, it's pretty scary. This happened in Australia. It happened in our own backyard. Yet the media for weeks didn't really pick it up because they continued to call it a bushfire. Moving on from there, look, we've had quite a few wins in the sense of having the evidence to prove that these things happen. When I say a win, when people die, it's not a win. But the fact that we could prove the health department wrong, we could prove the government wrong and say, now you've got to pay attention to us. We run this show, you will do what we want you to do. And we already see that in evidence in all of the state uh, emergency services, the EPA, the um, all, the, all the government bodies in Victoria are pretty scared. You know, they've lost the trust of the community, they're trying to get it back. But a company now has been charged with 10 counts um, from 10 um, charges from the EPA, and that's five to do with the community and how the fire impacted on the community guarding South of Mine. Last week, um, WorkSafe charged the four operators of the um, power station with three charges each of what they had done in not protecting their workers, not protecting their community. It's another win. We've got a long way to go. But saying that, it's made people say, well, what's going to happen now? We have a three major, um, or sorry, four coal-fired power, coal power stations. We have three large open cuts. What is going to happen to our community? We have a 90-year proud history of producing power for Victoria and Tasmania. You know, we're proud of what we've done. We were, we were the innovators of power. So the community started to ask questions. Well, coal is in the decline. What is going to happen to our community? We don't have anything else. We really don't have anything major that will employ. In the 1990s, the power stations were privatised. We lost 7,000 jobs. There was no help for the community. There wasn't, well, we're going to bring in a manufacturer or we're going to bring in government offices. There was nothing. So what happens now if we lose a Hazelwood power station, we lose a Yellow power station or William power stations? I think it's really important um, for people to understand communities that only have coal, that they need something else, but you can't walk in and say, 
shut the cases are down. Okay? So last year we had, um, what we've been doing is um, bringing different groups into Latrobe Valley and getting them to understand the needs of the community. Often um, activists will say, well, let's tie ourselves to a dredger. You know, when activists or what we would call greenies, and you know, I was a little bit like, well, greenies, I don't like greenies. <laughs> you know, but I realised now what the difference is. As I said, I didn't really have anything to do with them. <laughs> yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> Sorry. And I, I mean it in a really nice way because I want, I want you to understand, <laughs> or people to understand, now I've really embarrassed myself. Um, when when outsiders come into a community and tell the community what to do, it doesn't work. It actually turns communities away from the people that try and come in. So what we need to do is work inside those communities. Yes, by all means, listen to the communities. See what their needs are. Get, share your experiences with these communities. You know, at the moment we go, the questions are being asked, what are we going to transition to? We've had our local council put a report up and say, well, we've got to diversify our economy. There'll be a couple in the room that are aware of this. They mentioned coal 19 times. Did they mention renewables? Not once. Okay? They actually didn't get any other solution apart from coal. Alright, we've sat down, we've spoken to them and said, said there's a lot more need to our community than having all our eggs into one basket. So we've really petitioned our group at the moment are um, working on our working on our own transition plan. So we're looking at um, creating an energy innovation hub or something similar that we would use renewable energies, but we don't want to just build a plant that will be renewable energies. We need to teach the children of today the things that we don't even know will be in the future. Okay? I think we've... Latrobe used to um, train all the engineers for all the power stations, but we've lost that. I think a lot of whole communities have lost that as well. You know, we used to have our pre apprenticeships and we would train these people in all the different skills, but it's gone. Latrobe Valley, I'll just take one step back and going back to the political aspect of things. We were a very safe national seat. So safe. But guess what? The National Party didn't stand up for us when they needed it. In fact, they made Russell North the mining minister during the fires and he accepted the role. That was pretty insulting. So what we did is we put up an independent candidate. As I said, it's been a safe seat for a really long time. The independent candidate didn't get in. We, you know, we, we sort of hoped she might, but really didn't expect her to. But she took 13% of the votes. We now have a marginal seat. We have a government realising that we are leading, that they're not going to tell us what to do. We have a Labor Party trying to win the seat. We have the Greens, Greens coming in trying to win the seat. So all I say to you, 
is it's really important, even if you don't believe that you have skills that you can share with others, it's not what you can't do, but what it's what you can. If you are only able to put leaflets into letterboxes, start there. You will build your skills. I would never have thought three years ago that I would be here talking to a group like this about experiences. As I said, the position probably found me, well, it did find me, but be prepared, be open. Together we will make change, and we really will. Together we can, and we will make change. Well, if you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, it's sure know where you are. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. If you listen to 3CO, clap your hands. We'll check out the happy vibe. We're gonna ring up and subscribe. If you listen to 3CO, clap your what? Who the hell is that? Flap your hands. What are you talking about? I ain't no elephant. Get out of here. This is handmade radio. Flap your hands. Get out. Get the hell out of here now. Flap it, flap it, flap it, flap it, flap it. Even though we are incredibly lucky. Uh, we're living through a period of revolutionary change. Uh, yeah, and I've said this often when I talk publicly uh, that uh, quite often people in period of revolutionary change don't even know they're in it. They're working so hard. Uh, and I suspect that's the case with many of us. Uh, but we are in a period of change. There will inevitably be huge changes, and, and they already are starting uh, in our society in terms of an energy revolution. Um, what worries me a bit in all of that is that it'll be uh, that I hope it's not just simply going to be a transition from a whole lot of big corporations which control fossil fuels to a whole lot of big corporations that control renewable energy. That I would. I would really like to see that, um, that revolutionary change incorporate a, a social element, a strong social element, a strong uh, social justice element, and a strong democratic element that says it's also about uh, energy democracy uh, and it's also about environmental democracy, environmental justice. So um, I, I think the only way that that's going to happen is with a social movement strategy. Now, I've been involved in a social movement strategy now uh, on the area, in the area of fossil fuels for about six years. And the, um, what that social movement has effectively been doing uh, has been stopping the worst elements of, or the worst um, uh, outcomes from the activity of the fossil fuel industry, in particular the coal and gas industries. And I think we've done a pretty fair job of that, holding the line. Uh, until the new era of, uh, of uh, renewables comes into play. I mean, that's been the strategy, you know, the, the Sunrise uh, Project and, and Lock the Gate and various others have worked on now for uh, uh, quite a long time, and I think it's been very effective. But the new social movement that is going to arise, and um, Amanda Carl, I see sitting down there, is a, a very much a proponent of this, the new social movement that will emerge in the next 10 years will bring together 
all of those wonderful projects that are happening now, or many of those projects that are happening now, all around this country, um, you know, solar project here, neighbourhood energy project there, a, a, a agricultural initiative going on here, you know, another, a, a downstream manufacturing and so on. All of those sorts of initiatives happening at the community level that on their own are inspirational but not necessarily going to be terribly successful, but which together could do what the movement has been able to do over the last five or six years in this country in the area of stopping uh, developments, which have been uh, potentially very destructive, into creating a new economy that genuinely is new, that genuinely, genuinely um, uh, embeds those just participatory and sustainable, uh, sustainable elements to it. And I think that's really important in terms of where we go after we have finished, or at, at the same time really, as we are um, fighting off the very worst developments of the, uh, of the fossil fuel era. So I, I look forward to that, uh, that social movement emerging and strengthening and the outcomes that it's going to, um, that it's going to achieve. I'll be too old to be a, to be a major part of it, but I'll, I'll be looking about it and writing very learned articles about it. <laughs> Um, the, uh, what I want to focus on in, uh, in the time I've got left uh, is um, part of that transition, which I think is almost self-evident. As well as moving in new industries, that, uh, you know, especially in the energy area, which um, uh, will, will build into uh, a major industry in the coming decade or two, um, we also are going to need industries which patch up the damage, which have been the damage which has been given to us, the legacy that's been given to us by the fossil fuel industries. And I'm talking here about um, mine site rehabilitation. Um, the, uh, I'll take the Queensland example because um, uh, it's, it's my home state and it's probably the worst. I mean, the Hunter Valley is pretty bad and, and a good uh, example to take. But Queensland is monstrous. And, um, and even though it's most of our coal exists in remote areas, uh, the, the practices have been horrific over the, over the last 40 or 50 years. Need to be exposed and, and certainly can be addressed in terms of rehabilitation. The, the main uh, area for um, coal mining in Queensland is the, uh, what's called the Bowen Basin. Um, I want to take that part of it, which is the Fitzroy River catchment. Uh, it, the Fitzroy River catchment is the second biggest in Australia behind the Murray-Darling catchment. It is a very huge catchment. Um, it has about 40 coal mines in it. About 100,000 hectares um, of that catchment have been disturbed by coal mining, both open cut and underground, mostly open cut. Uh, and um, they, many of them have, well, quite a few of them have actually closed in recent years, as the mining boom has come to an end, they are put on what they call care and maintenance, which simply means that they don't do anything, anything much, they just lock the gate and uh, walk away, leaving our skeleton staff there uh, to look after security and a few other things that need to be uh, checked on. 
uh, and, um, and others have wound back. But you see, in the period when, there was, um, uh, when it was full on, when they needed to get as much coal out as they could because they were selling at $140 a tonne, um, they were so busy using their bulldozers to dig up the coal that they had no, none left to do any progressive rehabilitation, which is what they're supposed to do, according to their environmental authority. But they almost never do. And when they do, it's just as a bit of an afterthought, it's an add-on, it's nowhere near enough, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's usually fairly mediocre at best. Restoring it to some sort of productive use. Mining companies, you look on their website, they always say, we restore this land to what it was before, or even better. They're yeah, right. Um, but we can hit them with their own, we can hit them with their own rhetoric. And we can hit the government with their own rhetoric, which is, we have the, the, the finest regulatory system in the world. Well, if you've got that, then enforce it. Do the job. And, um, and if that was the case, we could employ at least 120 blokes, uh, women, on that um, site, pushing dirt, um, uh, you know, capping the area, revegetation for the next six to ten years. There's four the other mines in the Fitzroy River Catherine where the same thing could be happening. We want to go out and talk to, um, uh, to local councils, uh, to people in those areas, to unions, uh, and say to them, this is the chance to have one industry, this is only one, as part of the transition campaign for a lot of those towns which exist in the Hunter, which exist in the Fitzroy, which exist in the Lotto Valley, to say, yeah, this is one industry which, we, which can employ people, they, they can be high-skilled jobs, they can be jobs which are, in fact, very similar to the ones that exist on the mine and you know, have existed on the mine up to the present time. Won't be the same number of jobs as in the resource boom, but it'll be a substantial number, uh, and they'll be good jobs and they'll keep those towns afloat. And the same sort of, you know, we need the state government to be involved at the, at the level of the, the regulatory system. We need those companies to uh, be to take on board their responsibilities. We need the local community to be on side. We need the trade union movement to be on side. And we need to be able to connect the political power in order to bring it all about. And that was Drew Hutton from Lock the Gate Alliance on Mine Rehabilitation. We've had a full show tonight with, I think, oh, six or seven speakers that Vivian has brought to us from the Myuna Bay Conference on Beyond Coal and Gas. I'll start from the top of the show for thanking our guests. We had John Hepburn from the Sunrise Project. We had Gadrian Hooson from the Buralula Anti-Coal Seam Gas in the Gulf Country Movement. Dan Spencer from the Australian Youth Climate Coalition, or that may be Coalition of Climate, I'm not too sure. Lee Eubank, and my apologies for that. Lee Eubank from Friends of the Earth. Then we had Wendy Farmer, Voices of the Valley in Morwell. And as just mentioned, Drew Hutton from Lock the Gate Alliance. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.